Hello, my name is Nick Galetti, and I want to thank Bill Reel for this opportunity to come back onto the Mormon Discussion Podcast and share some of the thoughts that I have regarding teachings within the Mormon faith. Today's discussion will be a little bit on the topic of conversion, but perhaps not in the traditional way. I want to share some thoughts on what that may imply and use some ancient scriptures to do so, as well as the words from a modern-day apostle. Come now, let us reason together. It was an invitation given by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, as recorded in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Now, reasoning is a process done by the, both the mind and the heart. Reasoning is the reconciliation of logic and passion. Add the adverb together, as in let us reason together, and this statement implies that this is a process that God wants to go through with us, perhaps even as our guide. Now, this opening invitation to reason together was also part of an explanation and encouragement of the repentance process, saying, quote, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, end quote. Now, repentance is the change from that which was not pleasing to the Lord to adopting behaviors, and I would include mindsets that are in line with the divine. Now, to change our sins from scarlet to being white as snow or red like crimson to becoming as wool is more than simply a change from sinful behavior to that which is good. It is also a promise of purification, of sanctification. There are other promises that are included in this ancient paragraph. This promise of repentance is followed up in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, with the less quoted promises and warnings. Quote, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. End quote. Now these verses, verses 19 and 20, indicate that there are three layers to true discipleship. Being obedient is one layer. The second layer is being willing to be obedient. In this way, there's, there's much more to discipleship than begrudgingly doing what's asked of us. This gives some additional substrate to one of my favorite quotes from Elder Sterling W. Sill, he said, quote, It was a fortunate man who said that he not only obeyed God, but that he also agreed with him. End quote. Now, the third layer of these verses in Isaiah, the second side, if you will, of this gospel coin, are the warnings, the what not to do's or who not to be. In these verses, the promised outcome is, quote, But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured by the sword. End quote. Now, I don't take much of what Isaiah writes in a perfectly literal way as how would a sword eat or consume an individual as this text would imply. Now, I, I tend to think that the prose of Isaiah means that living a life contrary to God's laws and ordinances will result in a spiritual demise. Now, if one wanted to use the language of Isaiah's day, there are references to the sword being the sword of the Spirit which I interpret as having such a 
piercing conviction of one's own guilt that can be so severe, so spiritually wounding, that it may feel beyond repair or restitution. Now, perhaps this is a fate reserved for the severest cases, because as the scripture states, one must willingly refuse to follow the Lord, and by doing so, embrace the rebellious spirit of the adversary, the same adversary who was expelled for rebellion in the pre-mortal council. But what of those that find themselves not being willingly obedient, or those that may not be following the Lord, but are doing so out of naivety, as opposed to rebellion or outright disobedience? Where do those who find themselves in the middle of this dichotomy fit? Does Isaiah write of them? What are their promises? Are there any promises for those who find themselves in this middle ground that some might call straddling offense? For those that might feel as if they're in this middle ground, or even if they know someone who is in this middle ground, I want to reason together with you for a moment. Now consider that this choice is, is laid before you, and the choice is made when we answer this question, where do I want to be? Not where I think I am, but where do I want to be? Meaning, which side do I want to be on? Do I want to be obedient? To be willing to do as the Lord has commanded and as sacramental covenant making requires? Or do I want to embrace rebellion and seek to destroy that which God is seeking to accomplish? In many ways, this question is asked of us on a daily basis, but it may feel like more of a macro kind of question. What side do I want to be on? I believe Jesus Christ subtly asks the same question of the Apostle Peter, following his death and resurrection on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, when he asked, Lovest thou me? Now this question is as much an invitation to love him as it is an opportunity to self-reflect and declare our love and loyalty. In some ways, the process of searching our souls to answer that question for ourselves is what Isaiah is describing. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In some ways, the Savior's question, Lovest thou me? prompts one to look into their heart, to reason with the Lord on where they are at in life and where we want to go, as well as how we plan to get there. Inevitably, that reflection will prompt the need for change, the need to repent in some way. What that change may be or how we decide to respond to the conclusions that we make when reasoning with the Lord is an individual endeavor. But the promise is there. If we seek to make that change in our hearts and to come more fully unto the Savior, His grace has the power to change us from that middle ground to being a willing and obedient disciple, to change us from scarlet to white as snow. Now, one of my favorite talks in, given in, in recent General Conference was given by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in the October 2012 General Conference, and it was entitled, The First Great Commandment. However, there was a talk given by Elder Holland over a year earlier to missionaries, 
at the MTC in Provo in January of 2011. Uh, I find that this talk to be even more poignant uh, than the one he gave in General Conference, but along the same lines of that General Conference talk. It's not widely known, it's not widely published, but it's entitled Feed My Sheep. There are, are some links that can be found to the text online, and even some, let's call them bootlegged links, uh, where you can download uh, copies of the audio, which is what I've done. In this talk, Elder Holland addresses this question of deciding which side we're going to be on. And are we on the side that's ready to accept the Lord's promised blessings by being willing and obedient? He also talks about what making that choice will entail. And I want to share with you the last 14 minutes or so of the talk that I've edited down to be a more direct message for a more general audience as opposed to just missionaries. I shared this audio clip actually with my elders quorum a year or so back. So I made these edits with that audience in mind, but it still works in this setting. While we're not all full-time missionaries in the MTC, the message that he shares is both genuine and carries with it the spirit of Isaiah's message to come unto the Lord, to, under, to understand the reasons of repentance, and in choosing to follow the gospel plan and do so with willing obedience. In essence, Elder Holland makes a striking invitation for us to make our declaration to the Savior's question, Lovest thou me? Now, I understand that 14 minutes might seem like a long time, but please stay with the message to the end. I promise it is well worth it. We have a world in trouble. And if we understand these scriptures, it's not over yet. The last days for all of its greatness and grandeur in the dispensation for the church is not going to be a pretty picture for the world generally. And we'll be affected by that. We are affected by it. We're in that world. And you're God's answer. You're the hope of Israel. You are the hope of Israel. I stand all amazed. And what God would somehow know and have the confidence to believe could be done with people like you and people like me. It's a marvelous work and a wonder. I've thought long and hard about the apostleship. I'm not going to go into that tonight, but sometime in a seated around a living room fire with some popcorn or some hot chocolate, we'll talk about calls to the apostleship. But setting that aside, it's prompted me to read everything I could read about apostles, ancient or modern, just to try to learn, just to try to come to grips with it. That's the part I'll leave to tell you another day. But in so reviewing that, I've been drawn again and again and again to Peter, the chief apostle, still the chief apostle, the apostle that brings the Melchizedek priesthood and the apostolic keys back to the earth for this dispensation. Peter has a premier role in the apostleship and the Melchizedek priesthood work of this world. But when the Savior had lived his life and pursued his ministry and had gone, Peter was as bereft as most of you feel right now. 
And he knew, he somehow knew he was in charge. He knew he was the, he was the president of the church, so to speak, whatever, whatever the senior apostle would have been. But now Jesus is gone. He's been crucified and uh, the tomb's empty. He and John ran to the tomb and, and it was empty and, and, and there's this, this cascade of experiences tumbled down on them in, in a few hours, a couple of days at best. And then people are saying, well, what do we do now? I don't know that anybody ever asked that question. Because frankly, they never got it. They, they weren't any, literally, truly. I mean, what? Well, look, they've been in the church at best 36 months. Can you imagine picking a quorum of the 12 out of investigators who have not been in the church or new converts who have not been in the church in any case longer than 36 months? We have to give them a little credit and a little courtesy that they were doing any portion of what they were doing. But they didn't get a lot of this. He kept saying, I'm going. He kept giving parables. He kept talking about people would destroy the temple in three days and he'd build it back up. Well, they didn't understand any better than the Pharisees what he meant. Everybody thought he was talking about the temple itself. And they thought, well, I guess he can, I guess he can build the temple back up. And they just didn't get it. And now they're gone. And people turn, the 12, the 11, the, the new 11, turn to Peter and say, well, what do we do? And what does he say? Well, it's been a great three months. It's been a great 36 months. It's been, these last little while has been terrific, and all of it was pretty good. We saw great teachings. We saw wonderful miracles. We saw healings. There we were on the Mount of Beatitudes. We, we saw him walk on the water. Peter, Peter probably wasn't so bold as to say that he had actually for a moment or two. But they've got all those memories. And he says, wasn't it great? Wasn't it terrific? Let's go fishing. He didn't know what to do. He, he, it's over. He's gone. Maybe they thought somehow this was going to turn into this political Messiah too. Maybe, maybe good Orthodox Jews that they were once, and probably still are a little bit, maybe they thought, well, whatever we thought the Messiahship was, I guess it's going to be something else. Let's go fish. Let's go do the thing we know to do. We, that's what we were doing when he found us. So let's go. And they did. And they went back to Galilee and fished. And I guess life was going to go on. But something happened. It's early morning. They fished all night. They've caught nothing. You fish at night on the Sea of Galilee. They've caught nothing. Zero. Zilch. Nothing. Nada. No fish. And in the distance, because the sight is quite clear on a lake and the sound is very good across the surface of the lake... They see a figure who's made a little fire and uh, calls out to him and says, uh, how's your fishing gone? And they said, lousy. It's been terrible. You're going to have days like that. They said, we, it, we, it's, just, it's been a disaster. We haven't got anything. And he said, well, uh, cast your net over on the right side of the boat. And I'm sure there was somebody there who said, oh, well, now who is this? Who is this that's got such a cute idea about how to fish after we've been at it all night? 
and is going to tell us out here laboring as we are. There he is safely on the beach. We're out here in these boats. He's going to tell us how to. I don't know whether they said that, but I'll bet somebody did. But reluctantly and maybe out of desperation, needing a catch, they are, after all, now back to doing what they used to do. And if they're going to fish, they've got to fish. They cast their net over the right side of the boat and they can't pull the catch in. It starts to sink the ship. One of the miracles being that the nets didn't break. There were so many fish. They couldn't get the fish in the boat. And John said, it's him. It's him. And Peter, sweet Peter, who didn't know better than to say, let's do what we know how to do. Sweet Peter who cuts people's ears off and then they have to be put back on. And Sweet, loyal, devoted Peter looked at John, heard what he said, looked at the shore, saw the master, and bailed over the edge of the boat. And said, the rest of you can row if you want. I'm going in. And he just started going to shore. Well, they arrive, the Savior, in this marvelous act of courtesy, has fixed their breakfast. He's built a little fire and cooked and, and baked some fish, cooked some fish. How, just a little passing thought about his magnificence. They're going to be hungry. They haven't had a good night. And I'm going to fix their breakfast. And they fall at his feet. And then Jesus starts this little interrogation. And with this I close. Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish in this net here? And these boats? And these oars? And Peter said, yes, I, I, do, love, I do love you more than these. And a second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish and your nets and your battered old boat? And a little distressed at that, Peter said, yes, I, I do. I, I said I did. I do. And the Savior probably took a deep breath and smiled and looked Peter right in the eye. And though he didn't verbalize it, apparently he was conveying to Peter, May I now say to you for the third time, do you love me? And Peter is very, very sensitive about threes right now. And Jesus says, really in effect, okay, for the last time, do you love me more than these, than what you do, than what you've just been doing? And Peter says, I do. I do love you more than anything. And that is the moment that Peter became the great apostle. 
Forget the denials, whatever they were. Forget the cut-off ears. Forget the impetuousness. Forget the confusion. Forget not knowing more than to come back to fish. Right here, face-to-face, again, from the honesty of his heart, he said, I do love you more than anything. And to that, the Savior of the world said, Then feed my sheep. I have asked you before to leave your nets, and I'm asking you again, and I don't want to ask you a third time. When I said leave your nets, it was forever. When I asked you to follow me, it was forever. When I asked you to be an apostle, it was forever. When I asked you to be a missionary, it was forever. When I asked you to see this through to the end, it was because it's not over till it's over. Now forget your nets and forget the fish and jettison your boat and throw those oars away for the second time and feed my sheep. We're in this till the end. And that's the day Peter strode into eternity and became the man within hours, within days at the very least, when people pled that they could be taken into the street and left on their cot in hopes the shadow of Peter would pass over them. That's the Peter that he became with that little confrontation on the shore. And the issue is for all time and eternity, do you love me? Do you love me? Elders, do you love him? You cannot get there from here. You cannot be what you have to be. You cannot say what you have to say. You cannot become the missionaries, the witnesses, the emissaries, the bastions and sentinels of truth at your peace. You can't do it unless you love him. It is the first and great of, of, of all the commandments, the greatest of all the commandments, the first commandment. You need to decide tonight whether you're on a course that's committed to the idea that you really do love God. You really do love the Savior. And if you do, and I know you do, and I pray you do, and we'll all do this together, and we'll all march into the future together. But when you do, and when you say that, and when you believe that, then your call is to feed his sheep forever. Now, can you understand why you must never and may never and can never come back? It will never be the same again. Peter, you can't go home. You can't go back to fish. You can't go back to the Galilee. You can't go back to boats. It's over. It is a new life, a new day, a new time. You cannot go back. And if you do, you will break my heart and you will break the heart of God himself. If you turn your back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you have pledged your life, your, at least these next two years or 18 months, to teach. But my point is, it isn't just 18 months and it isn't just two years. And I stand here at 49 years and counting and say, I pray that it's never, ever, ever over for me. And I pray that it's never, ever over for you. 
And if you are ever tempted on your mission or after to leave this faith or commit a, a transgression or to walk away from the covenants you've made and the honesty of your heart, not assuming you're going to be perfect and knowing that we're all going to have to repent every day of our lives about something. But your course needs to be true. You need to stay the course. You need to see it through. You can't go back. You've left your nets. And you're going to feed sheep. You're going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ for time and eternity. Do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep and do it forever. May you do so successfully and with God's love and mine. And the Holy Spirit to attend you because you cannot possibly succeed without it. God bless you. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. I want to add one concluding remark to this talk. A sort of testimonial for what Elder Holland is teaching. I believe that we must all one day answer that question from the Savior himself. Do you love me or lovest thou me? I also believe that in a symbolic way, he asks each of us that question at various times over the course of our lives, but most poignantly in the partaking of the sacrament. The spirit in which I have personally responded to that question at different times and different circumstances has made all the difference in my happiness and success as well as the degree of my struggle and difficulty. When I picture myself sitting across from the resurrected Lord, look into his loving eyes and sense the question, do you love me? Then in turn respond without reservation, yes, I love thee. In those moments, I experience what real faith feels like. When I have taken the time to come and reason with the Lord regarding my life, my sins, my accomplishments, and my failings, I have felt my sins change from crimson to celestial white. I have eaten of the good of the land. And for those that find themselves somewhere in the middle of discipleship or open rebellion, I hope you take a moment to commune with your Heavenly Father in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Have a discourse where you reason together and both ask and are asked the question, Do you love me? Take the time to write down your response and review that experience from time to time throughout your life. If you're able, take the time right now for just such an experience as he stands at the door and knocks. If your experience is anything like mine, that experience will serve to be a source of strength and faith throughout the rest of your life. In all of my imperfections and shortcomings, I still feel that I can love the Savior, that I can love my Heavenly Father, and that they both love me. And while I had not articulated this thought previously, because of what I feel and because of the inspiration that I experience, I have also come to know that the Holy Ghost loves me too. When we declare our love for the Savior, we cannot do so without also acknowledging that same love for our Heavenly Father and for the Holy Spirit. True love is a 
powerful thing that brings us all together, binds us together, and changes our sins from illicit scarlet to glowing white. May you take the time to come unto the Lord and reason with him regarding your life. And may we all be able to answer with full conviction, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee.